Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is the word of God. Today is the second Sunday of Lent, and Lent is a time where Christians and churches engage in spiritual renewal, self-examination, sort of taking a spiritual inventory. And so what we've been doing during this short series is we've been looking at what are some of the subtle but real challenges to spiritual life. That is to say, if you're going to follow God, what are some of the big obstacles that you're going to have to wrestle with? that you might not immediately think of as those big obstacles. So last week, we talked about worry. And today, we're talking about fear. The role that fear plays in the life of someone who's following God. The most common command in all the Bible, the thing that God said to his people more than any other, is do not be afraid. That's the thing that God said more than any other thing to his people. Don't be afraid. And the only reason you repeat yourself so much and say don't be afraid is if you know that the people you're talking to need to hear that over and over again. It's as if God knows, and he does, (laughs) that our hearts are prone to fear. And more than that, that we live in a world that's really scary. That's really hard, really difficult. There's a lot to be afraid of. And so God comes to his people time and again and says, don't be afraid. Now, regardless of your faith, regardless of where you identify on a spiritual spectrum, you know, many of you uh, are here today and you might not be sure what you believe. You might not identify as a Christian. But the fact is, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, we're all often afraid. We all have things that fill us with great fear. And what I want to show you today looking at Psalm 121 and kind of pulling in bits from other parts of the Bible as well, are what I found to be the unparalleled resources of the Christian faith to help you engage with fear. And I would invite you, even if you don't identify as a Christian today, to give this topic a fair hearing because there are scary things ahead of you. And what if Christianity has the best resources in the world to help us be a people who can engage with our fear. Looking at Psalm 121, I want to show you that a follower of God can engage with their fear, first, honestly and in humility, second, non-simplistically, and third, with eyes open in faith. So that's how a Christian can engage with their fear, honestly and in humility, non-simplistically, and with eyes open in faith. So let's take a look. First, what do we mean that this passage helps us engage with our fear honestly and in humility? Well, come with me to verse one, the very beginning of the passage. The psalmist or the community of psalmists say, 
I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? In that verse, we're introduced to this important topic that on a spiritual journey, one of the first things we need to learn how to do is be honest in naming and speaking our fear. The person or the community of people who originally composed this psalm would have been on a journey. They would have been making their way to the ancient city of Jerusalem. And at that time, to make their way to the city of Jerusalem meant you had to literally walk up a mountain. You had to climb the mountains. Jerusalem is a city set in the hills. And so the only way there is up and through. There's no way to get to the city without going through the mountain. And in ancient times, mountains were difficult, dangerous places. The weather could often be devastating. There were often wild animals that were a real threat. And there were also places where muggers and thieves would take advantage of the darkness and the covering to attack those who were traveling and pretty vulnerable. Mountains were dangerous places. And so the person or the group of people saying, we know where we want to get to. We want to get to Jerusalem. But in order for us to get there, we've got to go through the mountain. So they're looking at their future and what they see in their future scares them. And they're honest in saying that mountain, that's, that's what's in front of us. And the first thing that the psalm invites you to do today, maybe you've not done this in a long time, maybe you've never felt free enough to do this, is to be honest in naming and speaking your fear. That is to say to God, maybe to say to another person, maybe to a leader after service, maybe even to your own self, this is what I'm afraid of. Like when I look at my life, when I look at the future, when I think about what could happen or what might not happen, this is what fills me with fear. It's naming your mountain. It's saying, as I look ahead, this is the difficulty and the danger that I see. And just being honest about that. Honest with God, honest with others, honest with yourself. But the second thing that the psalm invites us to do at the beginning is not just to honestly name and speak those fears, but it invites us into humility. It asks us to humble ourselves. So the psalmist says, I lift my eyes up, I see the mountain, and then he asks immediately, where does my help come from? That is to say, when I see what's ahead of me, I realize that I don't have the resources to handle life on my own. For him to ask the question, where does my help come from, is to say, I am not self-sufficient. I don't have the inner resources to handle the challenges of life that are coming my way. And this mountain, this particular mountain that's in front of me is too big. You see, lots of times we go through life and we're modern Western people. At least we live in a Western city. And in a place like London, we're taught to be smart, work hard, achieve, conquer your mountain. And many of you are pretty good at conquering mountains. You're smart. You got into the right school. You met the right people. You have that job. And it's easy for you sometimes to look ahead and say, yeah, that's going to be hard, but I got that. And then sooner or later, something comes into your life and you say with the psalmist, where is my help going to come from here? Like this one is too big. This one is too much. And in that moment, that confession of inadequacy is itself a spiritual breakthrough. Because in that moment, what you're doing is you're resisting the pull of the idol of self-sufficiency. 
You're acknowledging that I don't have the strength in myself and by myself to handle what's happening in my life. And that's where this psalm starts. Honesty, (laughs) that's what I'm afraid of. And humility, I need help. I can't do this on my own. And that leads us now to think about, okay, well, as the psalm goes on, what do we learn about engaging with our fear in what you might call a non-simplistic way? And to show you that, I want to show you a promise and a problem. So here's the promise. Come with me now to verse 2. The author of the psalm says, where's my help going to come from? The mountain's ahead of me. I'm afraid. I'm scared. And no sooner does he then say in verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What he's doing, it's beautiful. He's thinking theologically. He's saying, okay, I look ahead, the mountain's in front of me, I'm scared of that mountain, but let's think. I'm a follower of God. And I know that my God is the one who made that mountain. In fact, he made heaven and earth. He is bigger than the thing that I'm afraid of. So he's the one that's gonna help me. So he's looking at his fear, he's not ignoring it, but he's thinking out the implications of his faith and he's saying, I'm going to get help from God because my God made the thing that I'm afraid of. He made the mountain. He's stronger than whatever it is that's threatening me. And then he goes on in the psalm, verse 3. He will not let my foot to slip. Verse 4. He watches over Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God will help me constantly. God is never taking a nap. Like there's never a moment in my life where something terrible happens and God goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I got distracted for one second. And do you see what happened? He's constantly watching over his people. And it goes on, verse seven, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He'll watch over your whole life. You're coming, you're going now and forever. Verse three, God's gonna constantly help his people. Verse seven, he's gonna comprehensively help you. There's no part of your life that he's not paying attention to. There's no part of your life that he's uninterested in. There's no part of your life that's not under his watchful and protective care. So what the psalmist is doing is he's saying, yes, I'm afraid of the mountain, but let's think out my faith. My God made the mountain. He's constantly with me. He's comprehensively with me. He's got me. Now, do you remember earlier I said that Christians are those who engage with fear non-simplistically? Here's why I say it that way. It's possible to read this psalm and to honestly read it and say to yourself something like, that's not true. Verse seven, let me read it again. The Lord will keep you from all harm. And you look at your life and you would say, that's not true. The Lord hasn't kept me from all harm In fact, my life has been filled with harm, filled with pain. And more than that, when you look at the story of the Bible, you see that there are spiritual giants. That is, people of great faith had profound pain and suffering come into their life. So we think, for example, of Job. Job is the archetype sufferer. Everything goes wrong in his life. And you know what he gets at the end? No explanation. Like everything goes bad. And at the end of his life, God says, you should have have trusted me, basically. I mean, that's tough. That's hard. We could think of Naomi in the Bible. 
the story of Ruth. Her life falls apart. Really hard, difficult, profound loss comes into her life. And she, in chapter one of her story, changes her name. Naomi, the name means sweetness. And she says to some of her friends, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, because God has dealt very bitterly with me. She's a person of faith, person who's trusting in God, and yet her story is one of loss and sadness and dejection and pain. I mean, we could go on and on with examples. Think of Joseph, who was a young man of great faith and whose life went from bad to worse to worser for 20 plus years before anything changed or got better. And so what you should be thinking when you read Psalm 121, what you should be thinking is you should be saying something like, that sounds good. And I understand why the psalmist felt the way he did. And yet my experience or the experience of the people I love, it doesn't seem to add up. Like he'll keep me from all harm, but he hasn't. So how do I make sense of this? And friends, this is a crucial moment. Because until you wrestle honestly with the promises of the Bible, until you wrestle honestly about how to connect scripture to your lived experience, you're in danger of a weak and shallow faith that won't actually stand up when the waves come crashing down. But it's only by wrestling hard that we actually learn how to, you might say, think about our faith in a nuanced and non-simplistic way. And that's what I want to try to do with you now for a few moments. Why is it that the psalmist, fully aware of the stories that I just told you, and no doubt fully aware of pain and problems in his own life, was able to say, the Lord will keep me from all harm. He's going to keep my coming and my going forever. How is that more than just a cliche? Like, how is that the hard-won wisdom of the person of faith who's thinking about all of life in a deeply nuanced and non-simplistic way? And the only possible answer can be that his eyes were open in faith. That his eyes were open in faith. What do I mean? Faith in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's steadfast trust. It's a gaze on the invisible and a trusting in a God that we don't always see and that we don't always understand. And in scripture, as it relates to fear, faith is essential. And here's why. If I were to tell you, never be afraid, don't have fear, you might try to do that, but actually that's as impossible as it is unwise because there are scary things in the world. But what you learn in the art of spiritual life, that is, as a follower of God, what you learn is we can't actually really ever banish fear, not completely at least, on this side of glory. But what you can learn to do is to start crowding out fear. And you crowd it out with faith. And that's what's happening in Psalm 121. This guy isn't just doing wishful thinking, he's thinking carefully about his faith. And he's saying, the mountain is scary and danger is ahead of me. But I see, I believe, and I trust my God who made that mountain and who's with me. And so no matter what comes, I'm going to be kept from all harm. Okay, you say, well, I still don't get it. How does that work? Here's the best story I know to illustrate all of what this is about. 2 Kings chapter 6. 
there's a time in Israel's life, the people of God, where they're living in a valley and the enemy army out of nowhere one night comes surrounding them. They're just all of a sudden, Israel's in the valley and all in the mountains around them, the enemy has encamped in the middle of the night. So that next morning, now surrounded, one of the servants of one of the prophets goes outside and, you know, he's waking up, kind of rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. And he looks up and he sees out of nowhere in the middle of the night, the enemy army has come surrounding Israel. They're trapped. And so he runs back into his tent and he wakes up Elisha, his master, and he says, shakes him, he says in the old King James, alas, my master, how shall we do? which to put it in more modern English is, we are, this is not good. (laughs) We're toast. So he goes in and he shakes his master that morning and says, alas, my master, how shall we do? (laughs) Some of you wake up like that a lot. You look at your day, you look at your life and you feel completely surrounded and you say, how shall we do? Like, I'm terrified and I don't have the resources to face what's happening to me. I don't have the strength to handle this. So Elisha comes out and his servant is scared, is afraid. And Elisha comes out and says, don't be afraid. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And you could see the servant saying, "Mm -mm, no, I did the math. We're outnumbered. Like that's not true. Like, I know you're a man of faith. I know you believe in God, but we're in trouble here. Like, the math doesn't add up. We are outnumbered. Just like Psalm 121. The Lord will keep you from all harm, but he hasn't, and he doesn't. How do we make sense of this? Elisha, after he says, don't be afraid, those who are with us are more than those who are with them, says to God in prayer, God, open his eyes that he can see. And in that moment, God opens his eyes, the servant's eyes, and he looks into those same mountains and he now sees those mountains filled with chariots and horses of fire. It's the army of the Lord there to help and to protect his people. But friends, here's the whole point of the story. When the servant comes to Elisha and says, we're doomed, how shall we do? We're trapped. Elisha doesn't come out of his tent and say, huh, yeah, this is pretty bad. Uh, God, please send help. He doesn't do that. He simply says, God, open our eyes to see the help that's already here. Give us the eye of faith to see behind the veil to see what you're already doing in the midst of our fear. And that's what faith does. Faith is a glimpse to see the invisible. Faith is a glimpse that takes you behind the veil and sees that no matter how terrible it seems, God hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forgotten you. You say, okay, fine, that's a great story in the Old Testament, but how do I know that? You have to look to the other mountain, the final mountain, which really wasn't a mountain at all. It was just a hill outside the city of Jerusalem called Calvary. Because you see, Psalm 121 and Elisha's mountain, all the fear that we have, it all looks forward and points to that hill called Calvary. 
where the Lord Jesus Christ on the night before his death was sitting, kneeling in a garden, praying and with actual fear, agony, saying to God, his father, take this cup from me. Like, I don't want to go to the cross. And humanly speaking, who would? Because he knows that the mountain ahead of him is a mountain, not just a physical death, but on the cross, Jesus would experience his greatest nightmare. Like the thing that he feared more than anything would come true. And that is he who had enjoyed perfect, the perfect love dance with God, his father for all eternity. In a moment, that loving relationship would be cut off as Jesus died on the cross. He who put the lights, the stars in the sky, the lights would go out on him. He who perfectly enjoyed loving relationship with his father would cry out and have only silence. The ultimate helper on the cross became helpless. Like the one who helps all had no help. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus was dying in your place. He was dying as a substitute. He was dying for you. And what faith does is it's able to see in the midst of whatever we're going through. And I know this is not always easy. I know that. But faith, as it grows, is able to see God's purposes unfolding even in the darkest nights. Not because it's wishful thinking, because it's all accomplished in Jesus' death on the cross. So think with me. Whatever you're afraid of, and many of us are afraid of really big things, hard things that you're facing today, As you have those fears, the goal is not to ignore them. The goal is not to minimize them. The goal is not to pretend like they're not real. But the goal is to say to God, increase my faith. Help me to see more, not less. Help me to not just see what I'm afraid of, but help me to see you. Help me to see Jesus. Because think with me. What does the cross of Jesus mean? It means that no matter what, you're loved. Jesus died out of love for you. So whatever reason or reasons stuff is happening or isn't happening in your life that you're afraid of, it can't be because God doesn't love you. He already showed you how much he loved you with Jesus dying for you. But not just the cross, think about the resurrection. Jesus, after death, three days later, rises from the dead. Do you know what that means? The greatest foe has been defeated. Like the ultimate enemy has been destroyed. That doesn't mean there aren't little enemies that we face along the way. But if Jesus defeated death, then George Herbert was right. Death used to be an executioner, but now it's just become a gardener. Just planting you into becoming something even greater. If you really believe that, my goodness. Not just the cross, not just the resurrection, but even now think of Jesus' ascension. That after Jesus died, he rose from the dead and then he said to his disciples, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna ascend. But when I do, I'm gonna send you my spirit, which means you're never gonna be alone. You're never actually alone. One of the reasons we're most afraid is because we feel alone, lonely, unable to handle what's coming. But the eye of faith is able to see I'm not alone. God is with me. And that's why, do you remember earlier I told you the most common command in the Bible is don't be afraid? (laughs) Almost every time God says don't be afraid, he follows it up with, I'm with you. Like, yes, your circumstances are really scary, 
but I'm with you. So don't be afraid. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and even finally, the coming kingdom. I admit that sometimes just knowing good things are coming in our future can feel like cold comfort. And yet, Christians are meant to be those whose belief in the future shapes how they live in the present. And what Christians know is that the best is yet to come. That one day everything sad is gonna come untrue. That there's a coming a day where all wrongs will be righted, every tear will be wiped away, death will be no more. And as I've said, everything sad will come untrue. And if you know that, not just as a conceptual idea that sounds nice on a Sunday, but if you feel that in your bones, it enables you to face anything. Not always joyfully, not always peacefully, but enables you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even as Psalm 23 says. So what am I saying? We're gonna wrap up here and come to the Lord's table, celebrate communion today. But what are we saying? This world is hard and scary and difficult and dangerous. So let's ask God to increase our faith. Not that we'd ignore or minimize the things that fill us with fear, but that our faith would grow so that we see Jesus' love for us. We see his death-defeating power. We see his presence with us always. And we see the promises of the kingdom that's coming. And as you see that, when you see that, that faith crowds out fear and enables us to live with hope and trust and peace in a really broken world. So let's pray for that now, even as we come to the Lord's table. Our God, help us during this time of response to have faith. Your disciples asked and you granted, they said, increase our faith. So we ask for that today. Not faith instead of fear, but faith more than fear. That today we'd be able to be more honest than we've ever been about what makes us afraid and more filled with faith in your promises and in your presence with us. That we'd be a people who can laugh even when there are tears in our eyes. That we'd be a people who grieve and do so with hope. That we'd be a people who have faith more than fear. And help us even now as we come to this table to experience more of your love as we remember what Jesus has done for us. We pray this now for his glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.